Uh, This morning's reading is from John chapter 6, verses 1 to 15. That's page 1069 in the Red Bibles. John chapter 6, verses 1 to 15. Sometime after this, Jesus crossed to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee, that is, the Sea of Tiberias, and a great crowd of people followed him because they saw the signs he had performed by healing those who were ill. Then Jesus went up to a, uh, on a mountainside and sat down with his disciples. The Jewish Passover festival was near. When Jesus looked up, and saw a great crowd coming towards him. He said to Philip, Where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? He said this only to test him, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. Philip answered him, It would take more than half a year's wages to buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. Another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. Here is a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish. But how far will they go among so many? Jesus said, Make the people sit down. There was plenty of grass in that, air, in that place, and they sat down. About 5,000 men were there. Jesus then took the loaves, gave thanks, and distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. He did the same with the fish. When they had all had enough to eat, He said to his disciples, Gather the pieces that are left over. Let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and filled twelve baskets with the pieces of the five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. After the people saw the sign Jesus performed, they began to say, Surely this is the prophet who is to come into the world. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. That is God's word. It's a real honor to be with you this morning, especially on this solemn and very special day as we mark the centenary of the armistice. And I can think of no more meaningful or more appropriate way to remember those who gave their lives than by recalling their sacrifice within the remembrance and the reception of another's, within the sacrifice and the self-giving of the one John chapter 6 calls the bread of life who loved us and gave himself for us. So that's what we'll be doing as we look at John chapter 6. But before we do that, would you please pray with me? Father in heaven, thank you for the gift that it is to open your word and hear you speak. We pray that as you do that, you would show us the nature and the depth of our real hunger. And having shown us that, You would satisfy that hunger by feeding us with the gift, with the food of your Son, Jesus Christ, our Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen. Well, this is a well-known story, often referred to as the feeding of the 5,000. It's the only miracle story, in addition to the resurrection, that's told in all four Gospels. So you only get two miracles that are told four times. One, the miracle of the empty tomb, 
the other, this one, the miracle of the empty stomachs. And the details of it are relatively well known. For example, we know that it's a feeding of 5,000 people. But even right there, there's something interesting going on. What John tells us is that there was 5,000 men present. And also we know at least one boy. And there's a good chance that there was plenty more children and plenty of women as well among the crowd. So this may have been 10,000 or 15,000. It was a public event with lots of witnesses that was retold many times. It's also a situation in which the resources to feed this great crowd are too limited. They're in a place where you can't get food. And as the story is told, it's very much a story of remembrance. We're told in verse 4 that the Jewish Passover festival was near. And what that festival remembers and recalls is when God brought the people of Israel out of slavery in Egypt. And part of what that remembrance includes is that when Israel was in the wilderness, God met their daily need for daily bread by giving them manna or bread from heaven. And as this chapter goes on, Jesus will talk explicitly about that bread. So he's remembering. But I think there's something more than remembrance going on in this story. And some of the clues that there's something more here are that unlike the story of Israel and manna in the wilderness, there never was and there wasn't even allowed to be any leftovers. You could only have exactly what you needed for that day. And then the next day it would happen again. But near the end of this story, there are 12 basketfuls of bread left over. There's an abundance here. There's something more going on. And also, the people seem to be interpreting this story as if Jesus was just another Moses. Moses was a leader that brought Israel out of the bondage of slavery in Egypt. And maybe Jesus, it says, that they want to make him king Maybe he'll deliver us from the oppression of the Romans. But Jesus doesn't go this route. He resists that, and it says he withdrew. And again, I think there's something different, something more going on. And that's what I want to attend to. And as we do it, I think we can get some help if we follow the lead of a line from the poet George Herbert. In a poem on Holy Scripture, he described God's word as a well that washes what it shows, a well that washes what it shows. And I hope what we can see is that this story shows us something, something that we need to see, something that we need to hear. It shows us that we are hungry, but it also washes what it shows. It shows us that the hungry are fed, and it actually feeds us. And as the story unfolds, it's interesting because it's clear that Jesus already knows what he's going to do. But nevertheless, what sort of sets the narrative in motion is that he poses a question to his disciples. How are we going to feed all of these people? And we're told in the text that he does that in order to test them. And I think it's a test that pretty effectively winds up diagnosing us as well as the disciples. Because what Jesus does and what he knew he was going to do runs counter to our normal modes of operation. We like the significant. We like the public. We like the important. We like the known. But Jesus feeds all of these people 
with the insignificant, with the limited, with the nameless. A little boy whose name we don't know, nor do we even know if he volunteered or if the disciples just took his loaves and bread. But we tend to lionize that which is significant. And this really came home to me recently as I was reading a survey result of children between the age of 7 and 17. And it was asking, what do you want to be when you grow up? A common question. This is the kind of question I remember being asked. And I remember that in my youth, the kinds of things we always said were teacher, firefighter, doctor, astronaut. If you grew up where I grew up, you may have said cowboy. Right? These were great career choices. And I'm still hoping some of them may work out. But the number one answer now is YouTube star. It's not even a thing. You don't actually do a thing. You're just famous for being famous. Or again, children in the UK, primary school age children, were asked, what would be the greatest thing in the world? So it's a very open-ended question to which they could respond in any way they wanted. And the number one response was, to be a celebrity. Now again, not a celebrity for being in the movies or being a chef or saving people's lives. Just be a celebrity. Simply to be significant. That's our default mode. Jesus's is very different. He works with the ordinary and the nameless. But the disciples help us see ourselves. Because when Jesus puts the question to them, they say and do the kinds of things I would say and do. And maybe you can relate too. There's an unsatisfiable scope of hunger. At least 5,000, if not more, people. There are almost no resources around. And Jesus says, how are we going to feed them? And what the disciples do is they try to answer the question on the basis of what they have to hand, on the basis of their resources, on the basis of their abilities and attributes. They look in their pockets, and they find that they're empty, and they say, well, if we worked for six months, we'd have enough for everyone to have a bite. So if the people are really patient, maybe we can pull this off, right? And then another one says, oh, look, a little child's walking by. We could use his lunch, two small fish, and five small barley loaves. And I'll spare you Dr. Johnson's joke about who does and who doesn't eat barley jokes, because I have a higher esteem for Scotsmen than he does. But I thought that was hilarious. Um, Because, see, I didn't spare you the joke. I just said it in such a way that it didn't. So... The disciples turn to their own resources in the face of what's clearly an impossible task. And as we watch them do that, I think we can see ourselves in the story. Especially if we catch the hints that the hunger that's on the horizon here, even as it very much includes our daily needs of bread, is actually deeper than that. By the end of this chapter, Jesus is promising bread that does not perish, an eternal life. 
And when it comes to those kinds of deep needs and deep hungers, we often are turning to our own resources that cannot satisfy. One context we actually do this, and you can see this play out in what can be funny ways, is actually in relationship to food. Right? There's a whole culture now and a lot of interesting writing about how food has become a form of faith, a type of religion. We have morality language about it. You might find yourself using it. You ate that extra slice of cake and you say, I was so bad. I can't believe I did that. But then you avoid the cake and you have the quinoa and the kale and you think that was terrible, but I'm so good, right? (laughs) This is the kind of thing. We have a morality language about it. We also have purity taboos around it. We talk about food that is clean or we talk about being on a cleanse. All this religious language now gets used as we talk about food. But it also does the work that salvation typically does. It maybe doesn't keep us from dying, but it at least can avoid death for a while. And it's also one of the ways we measure our reputation or our righteousness in our social settings. Where your food comes from, what you don't eat, what you do eat, what market you get it from, where it's sourced, all of these kinds of questions are part of the cult of food. But when what you eat and what you don't eat and where it's from is so much part of your social standing, it can lead to really awkward social situations. The comedian Jim Gaffigan has done a hilarious bit on what happens when people who care a lot about what they eat and what it says about who they are run into each other at a certain fast food restaurant. And this is extremely uncomfortable because, of course, the one thing that the people can't admit is that they're actually there to eat. That's the only thing that's out of bounds. So the one person sort of says, well, I'm just here for the free cash point. I don't know what you're doing. And you say, well, I was just here to get some food for the children. Uh, No, I mean, no, not my children. You know, the sort of children on the street or the childminder. Anyone but yourself. And he finally then just pauses and says, look, this place sells billions of hamburgers. Somebody's lying. And I think in that moment, it sort of cuts through and says, yes, we're doing something strange here. But it's not just food, is it? There's been a helpful book written recently that describes and tries to diagnose our current Western culture as what the book calls the age of perfectionism. All of these pressures and expectations that we can present ourselves as somehow perfect. And this can be funny too, especially in some of the habits associated with sort of online identity curation as we try to present personas of perfection. I can't be the only person that laughs when someone's trying to take a picture of themselves next to the pool and they fall into the pool. Or being in a restaurant and someone's trying to take a picture of their soup and they drop their phone in the soup. Right? I know that's supposed to be sort of, oh, I'm so sorry you dropped your phone. I'm laughing. I can't help it. I find this funny. But what stops it from being humorous is that actually the horizon of these habits are so haunting and they're so hurtful. There was one study done recently that really resonates with where I live among university students at the University of Pennsylvania. And it was a task force commissioned to look into the mental health of their students. And what it found was that an overwhelming majority of students were operating under a perception that they had to be perfect. That was the word they kept using, perfect, in every academic, athletic, 
artistic, social endeavor. And that the result of this perception that they had to be perfect was the experience of enormous pressure that was leading to things like being demoralized and alienated and conditions like anxiety and depression and in far too many cases, self-harm and even self-harm in its more permanent form, which is why the task force was commissioned in the first place, to respond to these kinds of issues. And when I read these stories and I read this story of Jesus feeding these people, I realize that they're not just talking about the world out there. They're talking about me. And maybe they're talking about you. One thing I've found that we can do is if we can identify those points and those places in our lives that are consistently making us tired, are consistently sources of stress and anxiety, and we follow those places like a thread, they'll take us to a knot that will reveal those places where we're actually trying to feed ourselves. We're trying to satisfy our deep hunger out of our own resources. But our deep hunger, as John chapter 6 indicates, is not finally for food. It's for things like forgiveness, for love, and for life. And part of the reason it hurts to live a human life is that like the disciples, we try to satisfy this deep hunger with bread alone with our own resources. We relate to things like our careers or our friendships or our families or our success or our fame or our fitness or our wealth or whatever it might be. We relate to these things as if they were ingredients that we could buy and then bake into a recipe of life that would taste like acceptance, value, meaning, that would taste like we've done enough. But what happens is that this kind of bread, these little gods that we're trusting to satisfy us, they turn to ash in our mouth. As W.H. Auden once wrote, nothing can save us that is possible. We who must die demand a miracle. And that, of course, is exactly what this story is. And it's what this story invites us to remember and to receive. A miracle. The story does, as George Herbert suggests, show. It is honest about our hunger, which is as deep as 5, 10, 15,000 empty stomachs. And it is honest about our inability to satisfy this hunger with our own loaves and our own fishes. But this story is also a well that washes what it shows. It's a story of the hungry being fed. And it's a story that, as we listen to it, feeds us. There's one little detail that I think is very suggestive here. The story is a story of total lack when it comes to what the disciples and what the crowd have to offer to satisfy their hunger and to feed themselves. They lack all the necessary resources to do that. But there's one thing that there's plenty of in this story. It's a small detail, 
but it says they all sat down because there was plenty of grass. They have far too little when it comes to what they can offer and what they can achieve. But the one thing there's plenty of is a place for them to stop, to sit, and to receive. And that's what happens as they're seated. They're fed. And the feeding does not ignore their daily hunger. Hungry human beings are given bread that they actually need. But even as this feeding meets that daily need, it points to something deeper. We hunger for life and love and a sense that we've done enough. And as Jesus, the one who gives bread to the crowd, says at the end of the chapter, there is in him eternal life, and he calls himself the bread of life. Now, life that does not die is beyond us in our resources. And a life lived as an effort to bake or to buy a recipe that will taste like love feels a lot more like loneliness and like loss. And yet, beyond our abilities and despite our failings, our deep hunger is met. We are loved and given life not as a reward for the recipes of our life, but as a gift of the one who is the bread of life. Your deep hunger is satisfied. You are fed and forgiven, not because of what you have or haven't done, but because of what Jesus has given to you, because Jesus has given himself for you. And this, finally and ultimately, is what we remember today. And it's what we remember as in a moment we come to the Lord's Supper. As we recall the hunger and the hurt in this world, a hunger and a hurt that can lead to and include the horrors of war. And as we remember those who lost their lives and gave their lives, we come to this table And we hear this story as those who are hungry, as those who are hurting because we try and we fail to feed ourselves. But we come to this story as those who are invited to remember. And more than to remember, to receive, to take, to eat, and to listen to the one who says to you, to the one who is saying to you right now, Take, eat, I am the bread of life. You have been fed, you are forgiven, you are loved, you have life. And it is, it actually is, because of Jesus, enough. In fact, there are 12 basketfuls of leftovers, because he's more than enough. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for the gift of your word and the way this story of your son's feeding of so many shows us that we are hungry and helps us to be honest about the hurt 
that we experience as we try and fail to feed ourselves. But thank you that you don't just show, you also wash what you show. You feed the hungry. You give and you gave your son who is the bread of life. And I pray that through your word and as we come to the Lord's Supper, you would again feed us who are hungry. In your son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.